Hello, my friend. Welcome to the Deeper Daily Podcast for the 22nd day of May. I'm Paul White. Let me remind you, full-length sermon is up on wherever you're getting this podcast, audio only this week from the CIM Conference in Floyd's Knobs, Indiana at Hill City Church. Sermon titled, Make It Count. Go check it out. I'm excited about it. It's somewhere around 48, 50 minutes long. Should be nice for a run or a jog or working around the house or whatever it is you do. Just pop in the old AirPods and let it rip. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. And when you get into this passage, you get into the oft-debated and tricky moments where Paul speaks about gender roles, males and females specifically, husbands and wives, and I'll talk more about why that might be relevant in a moment, um, that takes us on through the end of chapter 2. And so what I want to do is not dilly-dally and play around for days trying to get down to all the specifics of this. I want to read this through from verse 8. We're in 1 Timothy 2, from verse 8 all the way through the end of the chapter, which is verse 15. And then I want to use some of Paul's stuff from 1 Corinthians, which is almost a mirror of what we're talking about here, to try and land on what Paul might mean. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument, also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or with gold pearls or expensive clothes, but with good works as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. And as you can tell, this is loaded. There's a lot of things happening in this passage. Let's start with this. Paul appears to be talking about corporate worship because he's talking about everywhere men should pray, and then he immediately goes into the lifting of hands and how women would adorn themselves in this. So there's a little bit of the posture of prayer um, to which he qualifies. He's not so much concerned about how it actually looks, but that you stop doing it with anger. You stop doing it with quarreling, and it seems that this must have been an issue for some of the men in the social settings of the church to actually cease to be able to come into any form of spiritual agreement because they were always probably, like we do today, they were probably always fighting about theology or fighting about doctrine. Then when he turns his attentions towards what the women should do, he doesn't seem concerned with the clothing and the jewelry, really, but with the attitude of which they wear them. And we, we know this because the early church was in agreement across the spectrum. First Peter, in that third chapter of First Peter, he tells the women the same thing. Don't let your adornment be with jewelry and the hair, but with your spirit. And so Paul basically says the same thing. You've got to remember, culturally, probably not a lot unlike our culture, The Greco-Roman society was characterized by a true extravagance in dress. And so Paul wants the women to know that the external is not what defines them. Now, all of that fairly safe. It's when you get into that 11th verse that we start to get debate. Let me reread it. Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. And then he goes back into the garden to talk about Adam and Eve. Here's 
something I want you to consider. A lot of times in the Greek, when we take these Greek words that we end up translating in gender terms, they are dependent on the context as to whether or not they are, say, male or whether or not they are, say, husband. Whereas it could be woman, it could also be wife. And it depends on the, the context as to what determines it. Let me give you an example. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said thou should not commit adultery. But I say to you, if a man looks upon a woman to lust after her in his heart, he's already committed adultery with her. But the Greek rendering there is better to not label it as woman because that doesn't have anything to do with adultery. You label it as wife. That's what makes it adultery. So the Greek is dependent on the context of the other Greek word. In other words, in the Sermon on the Mount there, it becomes, you have heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look upon another man's wife to to cause her to sin with you or to desire to take her who is already obligated to another man. He goes, that is adultery. Notice it's not just looking at a woman. It's looking at another man's wife. Okay. Consider this, uh, the great Greek scholar, David Bentley Hart's translation of first Timothy chapter two. I want to read for you the same thing we just read beginning in verse 8 all the way through the end of the chapter. Therefore I desire the husbands in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or dissension. Likewise the wives, to adorn themselves in well-ordered apparel with modesty and prudence, not with braids and gold or pearls or extravagantly costly raiment, but rather with what befits women professing reverence for God, good works. Let a wife learn in quietude, in all orderly compliance. But I entrust it to a wife, neither to teach nor to wield authority over her husband, but to abide in quietude. Because Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, rather the woman being deceived came to be in transgression. But she will be saved through the bearing of children if they abide with temperance in faith and love and holiness. So once you start to see that the context demands that this be about husbands and wives and not about generally speaking of men or generally speaking of women, then it becomes an authority within marriage, not an, not simply an authority within church. And I don't think I'm overstretching there. Now, let's take that back to the thought in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about husbands having their head covered when they prayed, and that's shameful, and a wife having her head uncovered when she prays. And he's addressing a situation that had evidently arisen in Corinth where some women would publicly pray or prophesy and remove the covering from their head and expose their hair. And there's been a lot of discussions in these verses. I want to read for you again from David Bentley Hart. I want to read his commentary on this, and I'll read this right on out as we close this chapter. There have been many elaborate discussions of these verses, but both the issue and the energy with which Paul addresses it may be easily understood if one recall that he belonged to a culture of extreme modesty in which a woman's full and lustrous head of hair was regarded as among the chief beauties of her sex. Hence, a woman's uncovered head in public, and especially in places of worship, was seen both as an ostentation and as an ill-mannered provocation, rather as today, immodest dress is discouraged in many places of worship. Paul's long symbolic justifications for demanding more traditional behavior from Corinthian Christian women 
are notoriously torturous and at times obscure, and his arguments from marital hierarchy, hardly a contentious issue in an age when, in addition to the force of universal cultural custom, society was unpoliced, households lived by a labor economy, and young girls were married to fully grown men. They're no sooner introduced than they disintegrate in the solvent of his quite remarkable sexual egalitarianism. Finally, Paul is forced to appeal instead to a natural sense of propriety and seemliness, and his anxieties become quite clear when he explains that whereas a man adorns his head with a wraparound covering and so should remove it in order to approach God in humility, a woman's adornment is a natural endowment that cannot be removed, and so she should be covered if she too is to humble herself before God. I would add, in the end of that second chapter, I think Paul takes us back to the garden to show that the redemption for women comes through birth and that I think Paul is referencing the birth of the woman, Mary, who has Jesus as the redeemer of all because Paul's complementary argument to the Galatians would be there is neither male nor female. Wherever anything else Paul teaches falls, may it fall beneath the umbrella of There is neither male nor female, bond nor free, Jew nor Gentile, but all are one in Christ Jesus. We pick up chapter 3 tomorrow. We'll see you then. God bless.